0: Would you please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3? This week we will turn to verses 1 to 7 for those of you who are visitors or new. We're studying the book of 1 Corinthians and we have managed to make it through the first two chapters and this is the beginning of the third. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 1 to 7. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, Are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Mighty God, author of this word, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you like to be treated and spoken to as a baby or as a man? And if you were spoken to as a baby or as a child, would you feel patronized and would you take offense? Verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. One of the things that 2,000 years of history and billing ourselves as a Christian nation and calling ourselves evangelical and Bible-believing Christians does is it? it makes us unable to read Scripture seeing what's in front of us. It takes on a sort of uh Kinkade-ish aspect. You know, the author that every line is soft and every... Window has light coming out of it, and every garden has blooming roses, never roses with blight. (laughs) You know? That guy, you know who I'm talking about? The Kenneth Kincaid pictures? Well, am I saying Thomas Kincaid? Sorry. Thank you, David. Thomas Kincaid. The guy that's gone bankrupt. Actually, I think it's worse than that now. I think he's on charges or something. Anyhow. But it's real... popular, his art. And they had these galleries and all the upbeat malls, higher class malls. And so we come to scripture and even the most nasty things, we read it and we think, isn't that sweet? And we read about him saying that they're infants and we go, that's what I want to be, Jesus said, unless you become like little children. What a wonderful thing to say about the Corinthians. But if I were to come to you and I were to say to you, you're a baby, you're a big baby. I don't think any of you would feel like I was, uh, what's that thing that uh, Gene Taylor always used to get us to do in the elders meetings? He was always looking for a way for us to cause the person we had to discipline to save face. I don't think anybody's going to feel like we're, we're letting you save face if I come to you and say, you're just a big baby. And so I want us to stop and see how a godly apostle approaches Christians in a church. And I want you to see it is the normal method of God to rebuke us. Sadly, many of you have grown up in a fatherless home where you've never been rebuked from love where the the proof of love has not been the rebuke. I was meeting with a man this last week, and he described his grandfather as being somewhat distant and not very verbal. And then he said, but we knew he loved us because he disciplined us. And so many of us have grown up in homes where we don't get discipline from our dads. And so when the dads of the church, which is really all elders and pastors are, is church dads, when they come to us and rebuke us, we think, well, I must not be a Christian. Well, he doesn't like me. Well, I I I in in my in my great stature and pride feel hurt. I can't believe he said that to me. And then we read a text like this, and we're oblivious to what's really going on here, which is again that the Apostle Paul is saying to the Church of Corinth You are a bunch of big babies. The good thing about us is usually if we have to say that to you, we will give you the dignity of saying it in an office with the door shut. But the Apostle Paul does it publicly. And you say, well, yeah, but he was just speaking in generalities. He wasn't talking about particular people. And I say, oh, yeah? You think the people in Corinth didn't know precisely who was of Apollos and precisely who was of Paul? You think that in Corinth there was any confusion about who was being called Big Baby? In Corinth, it was just as clear as if I were to say to David, you're a Big Baby, David. Charlie, you're a big baby, Caleb, but I'm not going to do it to Caleb because he's a pacifist and he can't hit me back. (laughs) It was very clear to the church who was being called a big baby. It was very, very clear to them. And this is the normal Christian life. When the Bible teaches us that Jerusalem is our mother, when church fathers teach us that the church is our mother, and that as long as we live on earth, we are not ever going to be independent of her, we are never going to stop being taught by her. We're never going to stop drinking at her breast. The Bible is teaching us, and church fathers are teaching us, that it is precious to have the Apostle Paul rebuke you. It's precious. Because number one, it shows that he's not a false shepherd, but a true shepherd. And number two, it shows he loves you. And number three, it shows that the Holy Spirit has not given up on you. Okay? And so that's the first thing I want you to notice. This is a rebuke. It's public. It's clear what particular people are being rebuked. And it comes from love. And I want to ask you this question. Uh, Stop and think about it and look at the faith the Apostle Paul was exercising by giving himself to this rebuke. In other words, we should be receptive to rebuke, but what kind of pastor should we want? We take it for granted the Apostle Paul did this because he's a superman. And, you know, that's what the Apostle Paul did. But can you imagine how filled the world and the church is today with men that would never, ever, ever, ever in a million years rebuke their people the way the Apostle Paul does this? And what is true of such shepherds, what's true of them is that they have no faith. It took faith for the Apostle Paul to write in this way, didn't it? And you know what's interesting is... He was at the center of the controversy. And he still rebuked them. So he was the object. He was the subject. He was at the center of the controversy. He still rebuked them. You know, if I were in his position, what I'd want to do is direct your attention over here to the little birdie. I'd want to direct your attention to some part of the conflict where I was able to speak into it with magisterial authority, with nobody accusing me of being subjective, but objective, you know. Over here, we have Stephen and David. And Stephen and David are fighting over which office they get to have. or They're, they're fighting over who... Uh, who gets to teach the new, next new members class? And, and I have said to Stephen and David, or over here we have the elders, and among the elders there are some of them that think that we should have wine in communion, and others of them that think we should have grape juice in communion, and, and I, 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 in my magisterial objectivity and authority, have spoken to these, these brothers, and have, and have exhorted them, The Apostle Paul couldn't do that because he was a sinner. He says, some are saying, I am of Apollos, and others, I am Paul. I am of Paul. And so when the Apostle Paul spoke into the situation, everybody knew that it was about him, and he still rebuked them. He said, they're a bunch of big babies. He said, they're a bunch of fleshly Christians. He said, they're not men. Okay? And so... um, the first lesson to be learned here has to do with the method of Paul in dealing with sin. And the method is direct. The method is not aimed at getting them to save face. The method takes for granted that even the big babies are able to be rebuked and will receive it. Okay? So if you have a Titus 2 woman, come to you and rebuke you. If you have a youth leader, come to you and rebuke you. If you're a pastor and you have another pastor, come to you and rebuke you. If you are an elder and your wife rebukes you, if you're a husband and your wife rebukes you, if you're a child and your parent rebukes you, your father or mother, what should you do? And you're going to say, well, I have to submit. (laughs) Remember that this week? I have to submit. (laughs) Nope, nope, nope. I'll stop you, and what will I say to you then? What I'll say to you is, you don't have to submit. You get to submit. It is your privilege to submit. You should love the man that is rebuking you because he keeps watch over your soul Is a man who will give an account. In fact, you should submit in such a way that it gives him joy to rebuke you because he sees the tenderness of your heart. I've been involved recently in uh, disciplining a, a particular man. And this morning I went up to him and hugged him and I said, I respect you. And why do I respect him? Oh, man, he makes me really believe in rebuke because he's received it so beautifully. And he's loved us for it. It's unbelievable. Mary Lee, my wife, was recently writing an article about women fighting in the church. And a couple of times as we were driving this summer, she would say to me, She didn't actually say it this way, but this is what she was saying. She'd say, why do women always leave the church when you try to make peace between them and another woman? Why why do you always lose one of the two women? Well, it's real simple. What's the reason? Well, it's pride, right? It's jealousy. It's envy. But you know what it really is? Are you ready for this? Fasten your safety belt. It really is that their husband has long ago stopped rebuking them. And so instead of their submission muscles being exercised and staying supple and lithe, they've grown brittle. And so when an older woman comes to them in the church, they've completely forgotten how to love rebuke and correction. And so think about the Corinthians. There are a lot of problems in the church. And the Apostle Paul again and again and again and again and again and again again in the letter rebukes them. Did they take the rebuke? Well, in one sense, no, because if you read 2 Corinthians, what you'll find is that many of the things that he dealt with in 1 Corinthians, he deals again with in 2 Corinthians. Right? Did they take the rebuke? Well, in another sense, yes, because they were still there when 2 Corinthians was written And that's a victory, right? I mean, it really is a victory if you're still in the church to have the same thing said to you over and over again. Think of how many times Jesus rebuked the disciples for not having faith. It was just endless. Oh, ye of little faith. You hear that and you go, that sounds familiar. But they were there. They showed up. Think of coaches. How many times does a coach tell you to Pass. Not to hog the ball. Pass the ball. And on one sense, you can say, what a failure. He has to say it over and over again. But in another sense, most good coaches will say, I don't mind saying it over and over again. Think of the Blue Angels flying. All right? And if you've watched the video... Um, about how they do their thing. What you know is that after every single performance, every single one, they sit down around the table and their leader goes through and calls every one of them out for every tiniest imperfection. They go around the table and, you know, Tim was one foot off of how far he was to be from the next plane. One foot off. He broke up one second early. Whatever it is. And they go through and they nail every single imperfection. And when each individual is done being dealt with, you know what? Every one of them has an opportunity to say something. And and what they all say is, you're a bit nitpicky, aren't you? You know, why don't you focus on what I do right? <laughs> you know, can't you say anything positive? I didn't really feel uplifted this morning during worship. You know, my pastor's always criticizing me. The elders are Always admonishing. Why can't they ever encourage? You know? Why can't we have... What do they call them? What would the head of the Blue Angels be called? Does anybody know? You know, why can't we have, you know, Officer Smith, whoever the guy is that leads him. Why why can't we talk about what's gone right in the performance? Why do we always have to talk about what's gone wrong? Why couldn't he take me privately into an office and deal with me one-on-one where I could save face? Why does he have to deal with me in front of all the other men around the table? And making movies of it! And letting some idiot like Tim Bailey look at what my rebuke was. Because, you know, they actually film it and you see that particular episode's rebukes. You know what they always say, always, and if any one of them ever failed to say it, he would be out of the blue angels. What they always say is, just happy to be here, sir. That's the response of a Christian to rebuke. Just happy to be here, mother. And who's your mother? Ask Kara. Kara will tell you who your mother is. She has a little bumper sticker you should all buy. It's on the back of some of our cars. It says, love your mother, and it has a picture of a church. And that's what our response should be to the faithfulness of Titus II women and youth leaders and Sunday school teachers and everybody in the church when they come to us and they say, Brother, I'd like to be able to feed you meat, but you're a big baby and you're still on milk. Grow up. Okay. Why were they dealt with in this way? Because of jealousy and strife, verse 3. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? And so what we know is that there is a category of Christian that is carnal that is fleshly. Um, It's translated carnal in some Bibles, fleshly in the NASB. And if you remember last week, we were studying where the Apostle Paul is talking about how it requires the Holy Spirit. It requires spiritual thinking and spiritual appraisal in order to be able to understand anything of God. And we learned that the Holy Spirit is the one that makes us able to see truth. The truth doesn't come because it's given with shaggy dog stories and sophisticated philosophical uh, vocabulary and and PhDs and and, THDs and Brooks Brothers suits. But it comes through simplicity and the work of the spirit. And so we saw that God divides the entire world by his decree, his election into those who are not spiritual and those who are spiritual. And only the spiritual are able to appraise things spiritually. And those who are not spiritual can't begin to understand the things of God. And this is meat cleaver division across all of the human race. And so this week we come to this text and we see they're not spiritual, and we go to last week's text, and we go, well, they must not be Christians. And really, if the Apostle Paul dealt with you the way he's dealing with them, don't you think your conclusion would be, I'm not a Christian? And so all kinds of you, when you're rebuked, go between, I'm not a Christian, you know, like the, the young woman that picks a daisy. Loves me, loves me not, loves me, loves me not. And so if this week the the older women of the church didn't admonish you about anything, I'm a Christian this week, and if next week they admonish you, I'm not a Christian this week, right? Depending on whether or not you're disciplined, you think you're loved or you're not loved, you think you're spiritual or not spiritual, you think you're a Christian or not a Christian, and so you're like this all the time, back, forth, back, forth, back, forth, right? Some of you have been here long enough to know this story I'm about to tell, but a a former church... um, known as Prince. Okay, Um, At a former church, I had a conversation with a man that I loved one day where um, he had been down in Florida. He was a snowbird, and he'd come back to find there was controversy in the church because there was a woman in the church who was... uh, very, very uh, respectable, as the world understands, respectable, but a rebel against the elders and pastors. And this woman was uh, causing all kinds of problems in the church. She'd, She'd been warned privately to not speak at the next congregational meeting, and then the next congregational meeting was held. She'd agreed not to speak. She got up, and she just rebelled against the leadership of the church. And so this snowbird came back and found there was a hullabaloo in the church. And so he invited me to lunch. There was always a lunch when he got back from Florida. And it was never encouraging for me. And at that lunch, he talked about this woman. And he he explained to me that there are many ways of dealing with problems in churches. And his perpetual solution to me was, Tim, just keep loving the people and in time, They'll change. And what he meant by loving is don't ever admonish, don't ever correct, don't ever rebuke. And so this particular day, it was this woman who was the example of my failure to love people. And you understand what love people meant to him it meant that nothing except 1 Corinthians 13 would be in the New Testament. So he said to me, Tim. Let's call her uh, Mrs. Smith, all right? Tim, uh, for instance, Mrs. Smith. Mrs. Smith. Um, Excuse me. It's... Mrs. Smith is... Um, and Mrs. Smith, and Mrs. Smith, and Mrs. Smith, da da. and uh Mrs. Smith, did it, da 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 And what he was trying to say was, Mrs. Smith should not be admonished or rebuked. Privately, mind you. Privately, we're not dealing with a public letter like First Corinthians. All right? Nobody had told her she was a big baby. Mrs. Smith, did it, da, da da And uh, so when he got done, and it was time for me to give an explanation, I said to him, let's say his name was John. John, I understand, but... Mrs. Smith and Mrs. Smith and Mrs. Smith. And, um, and then I ended by saying, you know, in a church of six, eight hundred, John, don't you think, actually, don't you think that maybe there's one person in that church who needs to be rebuked? Just one. Just, just one church six to eight hundred don't you think maybe there's one person and his response was to look at me and say but tim mrs smith is a christian That's actually what he said and i said i know i know she's a christian So when your children were growing up, John, and one of them misbehaved, say, Hannah, you know, my Hannah, Hannah misbehaved. So, John, when Hannah misbehaved and you took her into the bedroom and you spanked her, did she look at you and say, Daddy, I'm not a Bailey anymore? I said, no, she knew precisely at that time, more than any other time, that she was a Bailey. How could you say this woman is a Christian as if that means she won't be disciplined? She should know best then that she is a Christian. (laughs) So you know what he said next? And these are all direct quotes. It burned into my brain. He looked at me and he said, but Tim, Mrs. Smith, is a nice person. And then I knew what we were really dealing with. It's all a function of social class. She dressed well, she drove a clean car. She lived on the east side of Bloomington. She was educated and she didn't pick at the abortuary. It won't surprise you to know that I was gone from that church in a few months. Church is either about a bunch of nice persons getting together and assuring each other that they're nice persons, patting each other on the back and overlooking the wickedness in every single church, or it's about us on the straight and narrow path with guides, shepherds on the way, who discipline us because we know that without sanctification and without holiness, no man will see God. None. And so, you know, we waltz into First Corinthians chapter 3, and it's all so Thomas Kincaidish, ish and lights are coming out of the curtains, and the curtains are straight, and they're up. I don't know why, but my wife hasn't managed to get curtains in our house yet. Obviously, our home is not a Thomas Kincaid home. And we don't have any roses yet, but when we have them, they'll all blossom. And that's the way we look at 1 Corinthians. You know, infants, well, yes, Jesus says that unless you become like a little child, you know, isn't that sweet? They're all infants. Now, now, here it is. This is what was actually said, all right? You just didn't read it. What the Apostle Paul actually writes is... Um You're a bunch of big babies. You're a bunch of milk infants. And you won't eat meat. And you reject solid food. And it's because of jealousy and envy. And it's all around who you like as your particular spiritual leader. And so, brothers and sisters, because I love you, I say to you again and again and again, the Bible is not written like a Tyndale House Publishers or a Zondervan book. It does not flatter you. It does not avoid where the blood is caked on the walls. It does not overlook. Your sin and my sin and Abraham's sin and Isaac's sin and Jacob's sin and Peter's sin and Paul's sin. It just doesn't do it. And so we have to decide whether or not we love this word, whether we find it sweeter than honey, whether it tastes good to us or not. And if you have had a father and a mother that flattered you and babied you, as you grew up or simply neglected you all right and you come into a church where there is a narrow path and if you go off it (laughs) they're gonna come after you you're gonna find it very strange and you say well like what kind of infractions at Church of the Good Shepherd causes The elders to come after me. And I say, oh, little things like jealousy and envy and divisiveness. And you go, well, I mean, you could spend all day doing that. I say, well, yeah, but look at 1 Corinthians, you know? Little things like that are what Paul dealt with. Little things like that are what the Holy Spirit inspired to be read for 2,000 years and to be studied. And so you say, well, yeah, but what other kinds of things? And I say, well, things like not waiting for each other to eat the Lord's Supper, one person going ahead of another person, one person having a feast while the other person is hungry. And you say, well, I mean, you know, next, next time we have the Lord's Supper, why do you allow people to go ahead and drink the cup at different times? I mean, aren't you going to obey Scripture? And I say, well, the application of that today is that some people shouldn't have much while other people have little. There should be unity, even in socioeconomics in a church. You say, well, that gets to meddling. I mean, nobody should know who has how much money and how much they give. I say, well, you remember where Jesus pointed to what different people gave as they came up in the temple? You remember that? He says, this person, the widow, gave more than all the rich men that poured in. And so he's calling everybody to watch exactly how much different people gave. And so apparently how much people give is part of the family life of a church. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. In other words, the Holy Spirit to move us from immaturity to maturity, from sinfulness to holiness, is unbelievably nitpicky. And do you know what picking nits is? Many of us have learned in the last few weeks exactly what nitpicky is. <laughs> they are so tiny that if you have a little saucer that's white and you find one and you put it on the saucer, it is almost impossible for my 56 year old eyes to see. The Holy Spirit is scrupulous nitpicky. Well, not nitpicky in the sense of focusing on things that don't matter, but nitpicky in the sense of intensely focusing on things that are very small but do matter. So, for instance, you think it doesn't matter what you look at on your computer screen in the privacy of your bedroom when no one's watching. But the Holy Spirit will focus on you precisely there because the Holy Spirit, in his perfect wisdom, knows that that one image in the privacy of your bedroom, with nobody watching can become rape and adultery and fornication and incest. And so what's one of the most vigorous ministries of this church? It is men confessing their sin at the computer and being disciplined by David Canfield and the men he's trained to do it. And you go, well, that's, that's scary. And I say, okay, fine. Go to any other church in town and they'll let you have your pornography. They won't nitpick with you over that. They'll just tell you to make sure that you don't actually act out your sexual addiction. Isn't clinical language sweet? But here, we'll be just as loving as the Apostle Paul. I'd like to treat you like adults, but you're a bunch of babies. And so I have to give you milk, and you should be on solid food. Solid food is for the mature. And so what is the Apostle Paul saying here? He's saying grow up. And you go, well, I, in my, in my great stature and pride, cannot have you speaking to me that way. I say, okay, fine, don't read 1 Corinthians then. And you say, well, he's talking about the Corinthians. I say, oh, he's not talking about you? <laughs> no, I've never said I'm of Apollos. Well, have you said I'm of Tim Bailey? No! You're doggone right you haven't said that. And you know what? Not one of those Corinthians said, I'm of Apollos. I mean, I'm of Paul. What they all said is, I'm of Apollos. And I'm of Cephas, or I'm of, uh, what were the other names? If you look at uh, chapter 2, or chapter 1, verse 12, we read it. He says, um, it wasn't just Apollos and Paul. Verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. And so even Jesus' name they took in vain by using Jesus as a placeholder for their pride, their envy, their striving, their divisiveness. Isn't that (laughs) mind-boggling? And every man that's ever been in the ministry knows what this is all about, eh? And so even in the elders meeting, you'll have different men siding with this elder and other men siding with this elder. There are some elders that always pride themselves on mercy and other elders that always pride themselves on judgment. Some elders that always pride themselves on having faith to spend the money and other elders that always pride themselves on having the integrity to not spend money we don't have. Some elders that always come down on the side of opposing infant baptism and those who come down in favor of infant baptism. But you never talk about baptism. That's too scary. They're just placeholders. It comes down to sort of doctrinal things that fit well under paedobaptism and credo-baptism. And everywhere you go, everywhere as a Christian, every church meeting, every small group, every elders meeting, There is always a striving based on jealousy as to which of them will be the greatest. You watch a soccer team play, and you watch how they break down after they get done a particular set of of drills. You watch them go and get water. And the one thing you absolutely know is that when they go to get a drink of water and to take a rest... There will be among them a certain breakdown, a certain quickishness, a certain grouping. And there will be some that will give evidence of being the leaders, the ones that are proud sometimes. You look at women. <laughs> women are the same way. Jealousy reigns. And that's what was going on in the Corinthian church. And what Paul says is, He says, look, people, he says, none of us are anything. We are simply servants. If you look at the text. He says, for one, one says, I am of Paul and another. I am of Apollos. Verse four. Are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? Verse five. And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Let me read it again. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I want to make two points about this, this verse. Number one, the word servant is diakonoi, servants. And if you know anything about some of the battles in the world today, in, in my f- former denomination, the PCA, I've left it now. Um, the battle is over whether or not women should be. It's just hilarious. <laughs> I have to choose whether I'm going to use the Greek or the English. If I use the Greek, it doesn't set our teeth on edge because it's ancient language. The battle is over whether or not women should be diakonoi But now let me change it to English. The battle is over whether or not women should be servants. It's such a joke. Is that really what the battle is? How many of you women want to be servants? Well, come on, be honest. Every hand would go up, right? I mean, come on. How many of you women want to be servants? Yeah, yeah, we all want to be, right? Right? And so that means... Make me a deacon! Because that's the other English word we use to translate this word, servant. It's the same Greek word as deacon. Many English Bibles translate it as minister. So when the senior pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philly, or Alistair Begg up in that city up north, I can't remember its name, it's a joke. It's Cleveland. All right. When Alistair Begg refers to himself as, as a, not as a senior pastor and not as a lead pastor, that's Mark Driscoll's thing, but as a senior minister, that word minister is that Greek word diakonoi, which means servant. So Alistair Begg and Phil Riken are senior servants. Isn't that great? Wig Duncan, senior servant. <laughs> uh-huh. Here's my point. Pastors do not own the church. But the church owns the pastor. Pastors do not own the church, but the church owns the pastor. This is not my church. You know, when I write and when I talk, I often fail because it's a habit to speak this way in the English language today. But do you know that I make a concerted effort never, ever to? to write about this church as my church. Now, is this your church? How many of you would say this is your church? And so if you were to say my church, no offense taken, no offense intended, right? Am I right about this? So why can't I do that? Because I love you and you love me. Why can't I refer to this as my church? Do you understand? The reason I try never to say that and never to write that is because I don't ever want to communicate to people that I own this church. I don't. This church, what? Owns me. Yesterday, I had the privilege of uh, being... um, thought highly enough of by a young Amish man that he brought a friend of his to my door, knocked on the door, and asked if, if they could come in, and if I had some time. And he'd worked on my house, so we went around the house, showed him the house. He'd last been in it when it was just framed. And when we got done, I said, so how can I help you? And So we sat down at the table, and his friend opened up his briefcase and took out a little netbook, or, no, actually, it wasn't that. It was a DVD player, one of those tiny little battery-driven ones. And he opened it up and he said, you know, something to the effect that um, I'd like to share with you an opportunity. And all of you at that point should have sirens going off in your brain, right? And I did have a siren going off in my brain. And he said, this is an opportunity that uh, we find some of those who are most, most blessed by this opportunity, are pastors. And he proceeded to insert the DVD, and I sat through about 20 to 25 minutes of a, of, a, of a pyramid scheme. And I said to my wife afterwards that she must be seeing God's sanctification of me because I actually sat there and listened to it as she sat at her computer, and I, we had much communication between us during that time, but not a word. You know, (laughs) because I think she was sitting there thinking, I cannot believe that Tim has not said anything yet. And I listened and I listened and I listened and I listened. And the whole thing was about how there are people that are rich and people that are poor. And the difference between them is the people that are poor aren't a part of this pyramid scheme. And I didn't say a word. And then at the end, actually, it wasn't the end. Actually, after about 20, 25 minutes, I said, okay, thank you very much, but we need to stop now. And David and Stephen will know that that was unbelievable sanctification on my part. In fact, any of you that have ever been around me know, so I was sanctified. And so he looked at me. And he said, oh, all right. And he turned it off. And I said, now let me explain. I've listened to your presentation. Let me explain to you why I will not have any part in this. And I said, the reason is that at the very beginning, you said that this is something many, many pastors do, but this is something that I will never, ever do, ever. And I said, you know why? Because I am owned by my flock. And They allow me to bury them. And they allow me to baptize their children. And they allow me to come to their hospital room. And they allow me to hear their confession of sin. And so, consequently, they love me. And I love them. And I will not prostitute that to my money. I will not use that. To make money. I will never do it. And I said, you know, the temptation is always there for me to do that. I said, you know, like, for instance, when people give me an honorarium after I do a wedding. I said, I had the great privilege of having a young woman come up to me this past week and say to me, you know, my husband and I found a, a, a check made out to you. And it was ripped up in, into pieces and what, what's that about? And I said, forget it. And you say to me, well, yeah, Tim, but do you rip up the check for 3,000 something that comes to you twice a month from this church? If you really are not going to make a profit off it, you shouldn't take pay. And you shouldn't say how much you get paid. And I say, you know something? Because you love me, you support me, and you support me well. And that's what I told this man yesterday. I said, furthermore, my congregation pays me well. Why would I want to prostitute my work and my relationship and my love for them and their love for me by making more? And so Paul says what? He says, Apollos is nothing and I am nothing. We are simply the tools that God uses to call you to faith in Jesus Christ. And then to discipline you and encourage you and strengthen you for the walk along the straight and narrow path. We have no delusions that our gifts are needed by God. Unless you're talking about our gifts of being brash of being too pushy, (laughs) of being too fat, of being proud. I mean, you know, the gifts that make you have to love us and have to realize we're sinners, those are gifts, and they're unique to us. But when it comes to the things that teach you the word of God without perverting it and giving it to you straight, and rebuking and admonishing you when what you want is to be uplifted, those things are all of God. And you deserve them. And you, being a good congregation, demand them. And if I didn't do them, you would fire me. You would not pay me anymore. But if you didn't pay me, I still wouldn't go into a pyramid scheme. And I told him that. Because I told him what I want in America today among Christians is more people that make their living with their hands and fewer that make it with their mouths. So thank you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for expecting that I submit to you and do my work faithfully. Thank you for not punishing me for telling you the truth. Thank you. Next week, we're going to have a sermon on church growth. And I know it will be very popular. Because if there's one thing that sells books today, it's it's. Writers that write about Abe Lincoln. Okay, no, no, I don't mean that. It's writers that write about dogs. No, I don't mean that. It's writers that write about cooking. No, I don't mean that. It's writers that write about church growth. Yes, I do mean that. And so next week, we'll be able to study this thing that sells all the books for all of the publishing companies in the evangelical world, which is church growth. But, but I want to warn you that we won't be talking anything about numbers. Because the Bible doesn't talk about church growth in terms of numbers. Occasionally, in the book of Acts, at the very beginning, it does talk about that. But everywhere else, church growth, and here in our text, church growth has nothing to do with numbers. It has to do with holiness and faith and purity sanctification. That's what the Holy Spirit means by church growth. So if you love church growth and if you're willing to have it redefined according to the Holy Spirit, come back next week.